Okay, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Recording in progress. Oh, David, you got a bagel? Okay, good. Good, all right. Good. B-Y-O-B, bring your own bagel. All right, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, I want to mention um, off the bat a, uh, an offer of condolences to Dr. Joy Maxey, who is one of our regulars here at Kabbalah and Coffee. And she lost her mom on Friday. So condolences to Dr. Maxey. And uh, we're certainly thinking about her and extending our love and good wishes and, uh, and condolences. Today's topic is all about friendship. But really, I think, you know, maybe more than just friendship, and I, I hesitate to say just friendship, but I think more than friendship, it's really about the power of relationships in whatever form they take. In my opinion, and this is not backed by any sort of scientific data or any studies, but in my opinion, in my experience, one of the greatest influences that exists on a human being is their circle of friends, companions, coworkers, etc. It is the people that we put ourselves around, that, that we put around ourselves. It is the people that we put ourselves in proximity with that to a very large extent kind of chart the tra trajectory or help um, plot the trajectory of how our life goes. Um, I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in the life of, the lives of those that I've known growing up. And, and for better or for worse, the people around us have a profound impact on, on who we are and who, who we become to be, who we come to be. The, the power of a good friend is incredible. The power of a healthy relationship is incredible. It's, it's uplifting, it's empowering, and the negative effect of a negative relationship can be absolutely devastating and overwhelming. I want to share with you at the opening of today's class a collection of sayings from Judaism and teachings from Judaism about the power of friendship, companionship, relationships, etc. So the, the book that we're studying, of course, is called Overcoming Folly. I have the copies here. I have the book here. Um, we'll put it up online when we, when, we, when we read this text as well. But I also have for today a handout that I made with a collection of sayings from our sages, from various sources, Talmudic sources, biblical sources, uh, from the Mishnah, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, and other sources, um, Hasidic sources as well, that speak to the power of the influence of friends. So buckle up. This is going to be what I believe a, an, an incredibly powerful class. I'm glad you're here with me along for the ride. I want to start with a Hasidic saying. Sandrine, good morning. Good to see you. I want to begin with a, sta a, sta a Hasidic statement. This is found in the book Hayom Yom. For those that may not know what Hayom Yom is, Hayom Yom, although it sounds like it's uh, Hayom Yom, <laughs> Yeah, it sounds food-related. It's not. Hayom, yom means day. Hayom, yom means, well, it, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a little bit of a weird phrase, but it could mean, and it, in fact, does typically mean, today is a day. Hayom, yom. Today is a day, which means, as the Hasidic saying would go, Haint is oichet ayom. Today is also a day. In other words, Today, don't let today just go by. Today is not just, you know, whatever, time to kill, but today is a day. Today is a day that we need to infuse with 
all of the energy and all of the, the potential that it has to maximize its potential. So that's Hayom Yom. In Hayom Yom, it says something really powerful. It says that when two people get together, when two people get together in companionship, in collaboration, when two people just sit together and schmooze, what you have in that experience, you have two godly souls and one animal soul. That's what it says. It says when, you have two, when two people get together, right? Two people are meeting or schmoozing, talking, whatever, collaborating. You have two godly souls against one animal soul. So just to explain very quickly these terms, godly soul, animal soul, um, just a very quick primer or refresher. The godly soul is the higher self. It's the part of us that is all about something higher, altruistic, selfless, transcendent, etc. The animal soul is all about self-preservation, selfishness. It's all about ego and self. It's not necessarily evil, but it's, about, it's very self-centered. So listen to this expression. When two people get together, you have two godly souls against one animal soul. That's the statement. So the Rebbe once asked the question, why is this so? It seems like if you, every person has a godly soul and an animal soul, it would seem that if you put two people together, let's do the math, right? Every, everyone has a godly soul and an animal soul. You put two people together, so what, what's, what's the math? You should have two godly souls and two animal souls. The Rebbe explains the depth of this Hasidic saying, saying, the godly, the animal soul only cares about itself, right? So my animal soul, right, because the animal soul by definition, the animal soul by definition is all about ego. So my animal soul doesn't actually care about you. You with me on this? Right? My animal soul, when we meet, when we collaborate, my animal soul is not on your team. It's by definition, my animal soul is my animal soul. It's all about me. Me, 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 me. Right? Number one. Your animal soul is all about you. So the animal souls don't double up. The animal souls don't collaborate. Which force inside collaborates and really cares about the other as much as self or, or even more than self? That's the godly soul. So the math, listen, this is like new math, imaginary numbers or not imaginary numbers. Right, with the, the math doesn't, it doesn't exactly flow the way you might think it would flow. Two people getting together, the godly souls double, the animal soul remains where it is, which means that you now have. I have, so within myself, I have my godly soul and your godly soul as an ally against only my animal soul, and you have your godly soul plus my godly soul as an ally against your animal soul, which means that getting together, collaborating, speaking, sharing what's on one's heart, what's on your heart to someone else, with someone else, that is a profound way of elevating oneself and, um, and, and improving oneself. Again, today's theme is all about the power of friendship, the power of companionship, the power of relationships, in whatever form, it's not limited to any specific relationship. By the way, you could have this with a spouse or significant other. You could have this with a parent. You could have this with a child. You could have this with a peer. You could have this with a coworker. You could have this with a neighbor. It doesn't matter. A, a, a relationship is so, relationships, healthy relationships are so critical to, to the human experience and to human growth and development, as we'll see again on many different levels. So the first point, which is more of a, a bit of a um, spiritual point, is that when we get together with someone else, we have two godly souls, one animal soul, and that means that the, God, that the animal soul doesn't really have 
doesn't really stand a chance in that setting. Again, assuming the conversation goes to something a little higher, not something lower, right? So, so the, the, the odds are stacked in our higher self's favor. There is a phrase that is used throughout Talmudic literature. Tov letzadik v'tov l'shreinu. It's good for the righteous, and it's good for the righteous's per, righteous person's neighbor. Tov letzadik, tov l'shreinu. Tov means good. Letzadik is good. It's good for the righteous person to be righteous, to be good, and it's also good for their neighbor. What does that mean? It means simply, it's good to live next to a good neighbor, a good person, right? It's beneficial to you to live next to a mensch. It's a good thing. Conversely, it says, Oi Rasha. Oi, in translation would be like, woe. Like W-O, not, right, W-O-E. Huh? Not W, not, not woe, but like woe, like um, unfortunate. Is it for the Russia, for the wicked? And Oi L'shchenoi, and unfortunate is for the neighbor. So to understand this, to understand this, but to, to develop this a little bit further, let's talk about one of the most, one of the tragic incidents in the Torah, which is the revolt of Korach. Remember this one? Korach, he was a, a cousin of Moses. It's always family, right? He was a cousin of Moses, and Korach decides at one point that he's going to try to take down Moses and Aaron. He says... He gathers together a bunch of people. He was very charismatic. He, he was very smart, very charismatic, very wealthy. He did a lot of stunts. When I say stunts, I mean like he did. He, did, he wasn't just a good orator. He didn't just you know, speak and share his message. He did stuff. He like, without going into details, he... He was a showman. He put in like a bunch of Torah scrolls in a house. And he called over Moses. And he said, Moses, does this house need a mezuzah on the door? A scroll on the door. Moses said, yeah. Every house needs a scroll. He says, the house is full of Torah scrolls. It needs a, it needs a little scroll on the door. It's filled with Torah scrolls. Ah, he's making it up. Basically, he was trying to take down Moses. And there's deeper understandings of why specifically he used that example. Um, but either way, he was a showman. He, he, did, he did these types of stunts. Anyway, Korach got together in his original, I think I have it here in the sheet, in his original um, dispute, he got together a certain group of people. Let's do this. It's not staple, but keep these three, these three together, and I'm going to give you a series of three sheets together to pass down. Okay, two, and... Three, okay, that's for you guys. Don't worry, I'm going to pull this up online. You guys can, can follow along as well. Hey, Darren, good to see you. Okay. Two. Okay, hold on, I think we need one more. Down on this side. Okay, amazing. All right, I'm going to pull this up.
second here. All right, I'm going to be skipping around the sheet a little bit, so you're not going to find it necessarily right away. Um, it's not on the first page of the sheet, but you will find this in a moment. I'm going to share with you where to look. I'm going to share this online. Okay, let's do this. Okay, if you look at your sheets, at the sheets that I just, I just, we just handed out, there, there should be three pages, each double-sided. If you turn to the unmarked page number three, so it's the second sheet in the middle. Second sheet in the middle, it says number 16-1. You guys see that? Yes, number 16-1? Yeah, looks like this. Basically a page with a lot of text on it. Okay, number 16-1. I'm going to read from the, from the biblical text. This is Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. This is the beginning of the Torah portion of Korach, appropriately named. So the Torah says, Vayika Korach, Korach. Now Korach, son of Yitzhar, the son of Kahat, the son of Levi, betook himself along with Datan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben. Descendants of Reuben. Datan, Abiram, On, Ben Pelet, these were the descendants of Reuben, of Reuben. Why does the Torah mention which tribe they belong to, that they belong to Reuben? Rashi answers, and I did not, I, I meant to put Rashi on the sheet, which I didn't, but I'll tell you what Rashi says. He says, the reason why he mentions Reuben is to tell us the power of being a neighbor. Because Kahat, Kahat, who Korach came from, Korach's family was Kahat, right? Korach was the son of Yitzhak, the son of Kahat, the son of Levi. The family of Kahat, the, the, um, the Levitic family, Kahat, they lived on the south encampment of the Jewish people. So just to backtrack a little bit, the way it worked was when, they, when the Jews encamped for the 40 years in the desert, they had the tabernacle, the Mishkan, in the middle of the encampment, if you were looking at a bird's eye view, you would see the tabernacle, well, I guess not like this, like this. See the tabernacle in the middle, it was a rectangle, like this. And then to the north, I'm just going for where I am, north, south, east, west, there were three tribes to the north, three to the, sorry, three to the north, three to the east, three to the south, three to the west, three, 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 that's 12 tribes around the Mishkan in the, in the interior, so that was kind of on the perimeter, right outside the Mishkan, right outside the tabernacle, were different Levitic families. To the south was the family, the Levitic family of Kahat. Also to the south was the tribe of Reuben, amongst other tribes. There were three tribes to the south, one of, the, one of them is Reuben. The Torah is telling us that Korach, who was this rabble-rouser, this rebel, this attempted coup-starter, Right, Korach, who lived in the south, who were the people that he got to be his lieutenants in this uprising? People from the tribe of Reuben. Why? Because they were his neighbors. From here, we have a demonstration, another example. Oy l'rasha, oy l'shchena. Woe to the wicked and woe to their neighbor. In other words, it's not good to hang around the Korach guy. Why? Because the next thing you know, you're going to be pulled in to something that you otherwise would not. Does this make sense? Yeah. Yes? Yeah? So the Torah, by, by dropping this idea of, uh, dropping this, this information of which tribe his 
you know, his, his posse was from. Like, where do they come from? Where do they come from? The sense of Reuben, why does it tell us that? We need to know which tribe? The reason is to tell us the power of being a neighbor or the power of companionship, the power of relationships, the power of the influence of those whom we hang out with. This is today's, this is today's thing. Who we hang out with is incredibly influential. When it's someone positive, it has a positive influence. When it's someone negative, it could have a negative influence. In what way could it be positive or negative? In any number of ways. The Talmud tells us, and I'm going to refer back to the first page of our handout over here. So if you can, again, these pages are not numbered. So, oh, but you could see it. It's the one that has the title, Overcoming Fallout Discourse 14.2. This is our second handout from Safari on this, uh, on this same discourse. So if you go back to the first page, it's a quote from the Talmud Brachot 63b. And the Talmud describes the value of studying Torah in a group, which on an interesting note is what we're doing right now. You guys with me on this? Right? I'm sure you guys realize what we're doing, right? We're learning together in a group. Actually, two groups that are as one. We have our in-person and our online group. So the, the Talmud tells us the power of Torah study in a group. Let me read this. Brachot 63b. The, Tal- the Gemara is the Hebrew word for Talmud. The Gemara interprets the word hasket in, the verse, in this verse homiletically as an acronym of the words as, make, and kat group. All right, here we go. Form, asu, many groups, kitot, and study Torah. So Talmud says, it's good to form groups to study Torah. For the Torah is only acquired through studying a group. The, int- the Hebrew word that's used here is chabura. Anybody hear the word chabura before? Chabura, the chavrusa is a one-on-one, a study partner. Chavrusa is like, a, is like two people studying together. Chabura is a bit of a larger group. Spoiler alert, we could call this a chabura. All right, there we go. Th- let's continue. This is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yose, son of Rabbi, Ch- of Rabbi uh, Hanina. As Rabbi Yose, son of Rabbi Hanina said, so he is about to expound a verse from Jeremiah. What is the meaning of that which is written? A sword is upon the boasters. Habadim. Not the boosters. That's on campus. The boasters. A sword is on the boasters. And they shall become fools. So it says in Jeremiah. Boasters would mean the arrogant, haughty, you know, self-absorbed, narcissistic. So Jeremiah says a sword is upon the boasters. And they shall become fools. Okay, so I guess that's a cautionary tale against becoming too arrogant. Sure, but there's a deeper explanation or an alternative explanation. And that's what the Talmud is about to develop right here. This verse can be interpreted homiletically. Homiletically means not literally, but kind of, uh, I don't know how you translate homiletically. It's a translation, but who knows what homiletically means. It's one of those words that the English doesn't up. Like, you know, in, in the... In the, I think the Hebrew for it is like drash. How do you translate medrash? Drash? Whatever. It's homiletic. It's not literally. It's more of a, I don't know. It's kind of um, like a sermon. Uh, not literally. It's, okay. Let's, so let's, what's the interpretation? A sword is upon the enemies of Torah scholars, which is a euphemism for 
Torah scholars themselves who sit alone bad bevad and study Torah. So I, let me let me break this down. The verse says, Cherev el habadim, sword upon the badim. Who are the badim? The simple meaning is the boasters, the arrogant ones. The deeper meaning is habadim, the ones who sit alone, isolated. Badim are the isolationists. Badim means bad bevad, separate. It's a biblical term, bad bevad, separate. Which means that Torah study, a scholar who says, I'm not, not going to study with someone else. I'm studying myself. Where does that come from, by the way? That comes from boasting. That comes from arrogance. The two interpretations are connected. Why is it that a person says, I don't want to study with someone else, a Torah scholar? It's because they don't deem the other worthy of their scholarship. Like, no one gets me. No one understands me. I'm too brilliant for everyone else, right? Ugh, I don't want to waste my time studying. With, right? these, are the, these are the rationales for not to study with someone else. So the Talmud says, according to this interpretation, that that ultimately will lead to devastation. And furthermore, says the Talmud, those who study alone grow foolish. As it is written here, Na'alu, and elsewhere it is written that after Miriam was afflicted with leprosy, Aaron told Moses, for that we have done foolishly, Na'alnu. So essentially the verse says, Cherev uh, el-Habadim, the sword is against the Badim, the separatist, those scholars that study separately, vin Na'alu, and they will become foolish. And furthermore, says the Talmud, the final piece of this is, they sin due to that ignorance, as at the end of that same verse it is stated, for that we have done foolishly, and for that we have sinned. So there is a snowball effect. What seems to be a very innocuous, a very innocent action of studying alone ultimately leads, can lead to devastation. So initially it starts with studying alone, then it leads to foolishness, which means essentially misunderstanding ideas, Torah ideas, because when you're studying alone, you have no, you have no fact check. There's no, one to, there's, no one to, there's no one to challenge you. Ideas, ideas don't get clarified in an echo chamber. Ideas get clarified with the discourse, with sharpening the idea against an opposing idea. How do you sharpen a knife? You sharpen a knife, speaking of swords, right? You sharpen a knife by challenging it, by, with, with abrasion, with, by pushing against it, right? So you sharpen ideas by opposing ideas. We live in a world where, unfortunately, no one wants to hear and, and have a discussion about opposing ideas because it's all like, oh, those, are, those opposing ideas are great. But, but th th there's a very different perspective, and I know we can't always transfer ideas in one place to ideas in another place, but in general, the Talmud and Judaism is always about having a discussion, not just with those that agree with you, but those that don't agree with you. I've shared this story many times. The tragic story of the friendship between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, two of the greatest Talmudic sages. So just a bit of background on this. Reish Lakish grew up as a Jewish kid in the Jewish neighborhood, and he went to yeshiva as a kid. But as he got older, he kind of went his own way and ultimately became the head of a gang of, of criminals. And the Talmud tells a story that one day, Reish Lakish and his band of criminals comes upon Rabbi Yochanan, who was at that point, who he had grown up with, I think, 
But at this point, they had gone totally different ways. This guy led a life of crime, and, the, and Rabbi Yochanan was a rabbi and a scholar and whatever. And so now you have Reish Lakish, you know, the, the criminal, who's now going after Rabbi Yochanan, and then he realizes who he is, and they have a conversation. Rabbi Yochanan says, if you would, if you would utilize your talents for positivity, it would be incredible. I would even give you my sister to marry. That's what he says. Anyway, apparently that did the trick for Reish Lakish. So Reish Lakish gave up his life of crime. And he, he, you know, he completely changed his life. And he married Rabbi Yochanan's sister. And they studied, they studied Torah together. And they became, in the Talmud, when you study the Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. His name wasn't Reish Lakish. It was Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. But that's kind of like the way that He's known colloquially, Reish Lakish. So Rabbi Yochan and Rabbi Shimon Lakish, Reish Lakish, they are two of the great luminaries of Talmudic thought and the great sparring partners. Well, Reish Lakish died. They became thick as thieves. Thick as thieves, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> to quote an expression. So, so um, what happens in the story is Reish Lakish dies. And Rabbi Yochanan was so heartbroken. I, I'm sure I've shared this story multiple times. Rabbi Yochanan was so heartbroken over the loss of his, over, over his study partner. But again, when I say study partner, you have to understand, when you study Talmud and you encounter Rabbi Yochanan's opinion, you will always encounter an opposing opinion from Rish Lakish. They never agree, at least in the Talmud. It's always Rabbi Yochanan says this and Rish Lakish says that. Always disagree. So Rish Lakish dies, passes away. And Rabbi Yochanan falls into a deep state of mourning, deep state of grief, to the point that his colleagues and students were very concerned about his health, like his psychological and emotional health. They, they, they decide amongst themselves they need to get him hooked up with another study, another study partner. So they get him the wisest person that they could find to be his new study partner. They studied together, and Rabbi Yochanan got so frustrated. And the Talmud quotes it. I wish I had it here. The Talmud quotes him as saying, like getting very frustrated with this new study partner and says, everything I tell you, you agree with me. Everything I tell you, you, you nod your head and you give me proofs as to why I'm right. He says, I don't need that. I know why I'm right. I want to know why I'm wrong. I don't want someone to tell me why I'm right. He said, when I studied with Reish Lakish, everything that I would say, he would come up with 18 reasons why I was wrong. And then I would come up with 18 reasons why he was wrong. And he would come up with 30, whatever. I forget the exact numbers and exact back and forth. But the point is that's how he would learn. He would say his opinion. The, uh, his, his study partner and brother-in-law would say a different opinion. They would challenge each other. They never got disagreeable, even then as they disagreed. They disagreed, but they never became disagreeable. They loved each other. They had different opinions. It's not that their difference of opinion wasn't real. It was very real. They had different perspectives, different opinions. But they respected the process of discourse and the process of fleshing out ideas and understanding an opposing idea to sharpen your idea. They appreciated it. They appreciated the process. I mentioned that almost parenthetically because today it's a lost art. Somebody disagrees with you, oh, they're canceled. For sure they're canceled. Like number one, first thing is, you don't disagree with me, well then, I mean, you don't agree with me then, right, then, then unfollow. Boom. <laughs> Block. <laughs> you disagree, you're out. Because, simply because, the, the whole context of difference of opinion has become so personal. 
it's become so, it's not about the ideas anymore. Right? It's, not, it's no longer about ideas. Tribal. Huh? Tribal. It's tribal. It's, 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 um, it's me versus you. It's being disagreeable as opposed to disagreeing. And the whole, the, it's, like, it's like the whole context and the framework is, is completely warped. And so we can no longer have a discourse of ideas because we're all, we're all killing each other. I don't mean that literally, I mean, or, and literally. But it's all like, can't even have an, a, a debate of ideas because it just evolves almost immediately. The point here is, the Talmud says you can't study alone. Because if you study alone, you know what's going to happen? You have your own echo chamber. And ultimately, you're going to come up with a wrong idea. And guess who's not going to be... And, and no one's going to be there, instead of asking rhetorically, no one will be there to call you out on it. And what's going to happen, ultimately, it's going to lead to sin. It's going to lead to going down a negative path. Why? Because you weren't studying with a group. You weren't studying with those that have a different perspective. The idea of conversing, of connecting with people that are not you, people that have different opinions than you, is profoundly important. There was a great sage, I think it was Rabbi Chia. But we're in a group, so you can, you can Google and fact check me because I welcome, I welcome the correction. <laughs> One of the great rabbis of the Talmud, I think it was Rabbi Chia, who said, I learned a lot from my teachers. I learned even more from my colleagues. But the most I learned was from my students. I learned the most from my students. Why? Because the students were the ones that actually asked him questions. And through the process of questioning, he was able to get to the depth of the idea. Come up with new ideas. Recalibrate. Come up with... Uh, let me know if anybody finds out who actually said this. Right? Talmud, I learned... Just if you Google the words Talmud, I learned the most from my students, that should be enough to, to pull that up. Anyway... Why, why did he learn the most from his students? Because they questioned him. Because they challenged him. That's the way it works. <clears throat> so what's the benefit of having relationships, of having a friend, having a colleague, having a study partner? The advantage of that is that your entire the, the learning experience is transformed greatly. Let's take a look at the next text. I'm giving you a, um, a bit of a broad perspective of various sources on the value of relationships. So we've seen the negative, the, the, the pitfall of having a negative influence nearby that can bring you down into a rebellion, the rebellion of Korach against Moses and Aaron. Right? Being the neighbor of Korach, the, 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 fa the, the Reubenite family, can, uh, that, that, that can, that can draw, drag you into this, uh, this terrible place. We've seen the value of positive collaboration in studying Torah. Torah study done collaboratively is incredibly beneficial for, the, for all individuals involved. Let's look at the next, the next piece. This is from Pirkei Avot 1.6. So in your handouts, it's the second side of the first page, middle of the page, where it says Pirkei Avot 1.6. Rabbi Chanina, I said here, right? Thank you for thank you for that, Rabbi Chanina. Good. 
No, I, I, I welcome the challenge. It's not a challenge. Hold on. It's not even a challenge. It's a clarification, which is good. This is good. This is how we like it. I got my chaz wrong. Pirkei Avot 1.6. It says, Yeshu ben Prachia, Joshua ben Prachia, and Nittai the Arbalite, Nittai Harabeli, received the oral tradition from them. It's, it, the context is the Mishnah, the, the, the first chapter of Avot is tracing the evolution of the oral tradition. Different, different rabbis, different teachings, different teachers, different students. So we're now in the generation of the leaders, the, the leading scholars were Yeshub and Prachia and Nittai Rabeli. So Yeshub and Prachia used to say, listen to this, three things. Appoint for yourself a teacher. Get a teacher. Acquire for yourself a companion. And judge all men, all people, with the scale weighted in his favor. I'm going to break down these three points. Number one, you need a teacher. Ase lecha rav. rav means you have to have a mentor, you have to have a teacher, somebody when you have a question that's uh, you know, a bigger question that you have someone to go to. You have to have a teacher, ase lecha rav. The Rebbe was very much a proponent of ase lecha rav. Everyone needs to have a, a mentor because life is too difficult to navigate alone. Now, it, this is in addition to having friends. This is in addition to having friends. Friends are the, is the next point. But point number one is having a mentor, someone that you look up to. Some, it doesn't have to be someone that's the greatest tzaddik in the world. It doesn't. The basic qualification, the first qualification is, number one, they're not you. That's the first qualification, that they're not you because they see the world through a different set of eyes. And they have some experience or some knowledge that you might not yet have. That's the only qualification. Ha'aseh Rav, have a mentor, is critically important, not just for personal growth and you know, maximizing one's uh, you know, success in life, but it's, it's literally important for one's essential health and survival in this world. You have to have someone that you can go to with questions, with um, for guidance, etc. So that's number one. Second thing is Acquire for yourself a chaver, a friend. Note the word is kene, is acquire. So what does it mean? I should pay off my friends? <laughs> Buy them off? What kind of friends are those? If I have to acquire them, acquire, typically this word acquire in Hebrew, kene is referred to in transactional conversation. Kene is a kinyan, is a acquisition. The acquire a friend, what? How much money does a friend cost? Where do I buy one? Is eBay, like where are we going here? <laughs> it's like Amazon friend. It's like a new, it's like a new uh, thing they're rolling out. Like what's, what is this? So the understanding here is that just like when, when it comes to commerce, buying and selling, everyone knows that if you expect to get something, you have to give something in return. But you can't just expect to get stuff for free. You go to the store and you want to walk out with a shopping cart of groceries. The obvious expectation is that you're going to have to first give and then you're going to be able to get. So the same thing is true with companionship. The th- same thing is true with friendship. The way it works with friendship is that if you want a friend, you have to be willing to also be their friend. You have to invest in friendship. That's the point. If you want a friend, you can't just expect that the other person will be there for you and you'll, you're never there for them. You have to, it's a two-way street, basically. Yeah. You call it cultivation in fundraising. Cultivation. Right. But it's, it's not only, right, and that's a good word, and it's not only about, like, I'm only being your friend because of what I want from you. It's not as, um, it's not... 
it's not it's not in a negative sense or in a um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a, it's not deceitful in the sense that I'm only being your friend because I want something from you. That's using someone. This is legitimately teaching us what it means to be a friend to someone else. What it means to be a friend to someone. What it means to be a friend is that you don't expect that it's a one-way relationship. That I get to unload, I get to that, and then and then that, and then you help me, and that and that's where the friendship ends. Friendship means that as you, you help me and I help you, and we have a dialogue that works both ways. Right? So friendship is not just taking, but it's also giving. So that's why it says acquire for oneself a companion. Acquire for yourself a companion means be prepared to invest in a relationship. Don't expect a relationship without investment. It's like a farmer expecting for crops to expecting crops to grow without planting. It's like I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, nothing grew this year. Did you plant? No. But why does that matter? <laughs> well, it kind of matters, right? If you don't invest, it's kind of like Joseph. We're in, in the Torah portions. The last few weeks we've been dealing, we've been exploring the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph reminds us of what it means to cultivate when the cultivation's good, when things are good, it's, and I'm just going to explain what I mean. Let me just come at this from a different angle. There are times in our lives, and we all have these times in our lives, when we desperately need a friend, when we need, we need support, we need friendship. The question is, when we need the friendship, do we have those friends waiting in the wings? In other words, do we have those relationships, or did we neglect them when everything was going well? Are you with me on this? When things are going well, you th- a person might think, like, I don't need a friendship now because everything's going well. I don't need to invest in a friendship. I don't need to be there for someone else because I'm fine. But then when we end up needing a friend, when something, you know, when we go through a challenge and we desperately need that support system, the question is, are there those around us? And the answer to that question is simply based on what did we do to invest in those relationships in the years of plenty? This is what Joseph teaches us in this years of plenty, years of famine type thing. There will always be years of famine. There will always be those challenging moments in life. Loss and heartbreak and challenge and unexpected, whatever it is. There's, there will always be challenge in life. Life is like a Ferris wheel. There's up and down and up and down and up and down. And that's a, an analogy from the fifth Chabad Rebbe. The first time he saw a Ferris wheel, he said, that is life. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Wherever you are, the one truth of life is, it's going to move. It's going to change. Nothing stays. Nothing is static. Nothing is constant. Life constantly rotates. Knowing that reminds us to invest in relationships, number one, because they're valuable. Number two, because at some point, as they're in need, we will be in need, and it's just a healthy thing. All right, back to the story. Back to the, to the text inside. So so we have two out of three, three statements explained. Number one, you have to have a mentor, someone you can ask questions, someone that you look up to. Again, it doesn't have to be the most brilliant, respected, tzaddik, whatever. Someone, someone that, you can, that you can turn to. Number two, invest in relationships. Acquire for yourself a companion means invest in relationships. And the third is, it's three, three um, directions. Look up to a rav, to a mentor. Look equally at, uh, when, when you're looking at your companion, invest in relationships. And when you sense yourself looking down at someone else, make sure you judge everyone with lekafschos, with a scale weighted in his favor. Never look down at someone else. Never look at someone else and say, ah, 
Look what they did. Da, da, da. Always look at someone with a positive eye, not the negative eye. Give someone, in, in, in English, we would say, give someone the benefit of the doubt. So often we look at someone and assume the worst. Not only that, not only do we assume the worst, we concoct, because God gave us a, an, you know, incredibly brilliant minds, all of us, so we're able to concoct stories and narratives that don't even exist. We're able to come up with, with theories and conspiracies and this, they said this, they meant this, they mean this, they, they didn't do this, they, they looked at me this way and they said that thing and it goes back to three years ago when I said this and they didn't respond that way. Yeah, yeah, sounds familiar. We all do this. Maybe we don't all do this. Whatever. Speaking for a friend. The point is that we have, right, when we sometimes don as kaladam, not lakapskos, we look at other people and we judge them disfavorably. We judge them with a negative eye. It's the way it works. And the mission is telling us not to do that. So, have a mentor, invest in relationships, and never look down upon someone else. These are the three teachings of this mission. The very next Mishnah, let's keep on, keep on looking inside the, the text. This is now going to be, I know these, these pages are all over the place. If you look now at the next page, which begins with Nitai the Arbalite. Nitai the Arbalite. Rhymes with Marmalite, but it's not. Nitai the Arbalite used to say. Okay, listen to this. Pursuant to our conversation. Keep a distance from an evil neighbor. Stay away from an evil neighbor. Do not become attached to the wicked. And do not abandon faith in divine retribution. Let's leave that last piece out of it for a second. Let's talk about the first two statements. Number one. He says, keep a distance from an evil neighbor. An evil neighbor means someone who is literally a neighbor, someone in close proximity to you. Whether it's a neighbor or a coworker or whatever, someone who is physically in proximity to you, but is, is a negative influence. Stay away. Next is don't become attached to the wicked. This means someone who's not a neighbor, but someone who is a negative influence. Don't run after them to attach yourself to them because it looks exciting. Stay away. So whether it's a neighbor, keep your distance. Whether it's the wicked, don't become attached to them. The point is don't, don't fraternize with, with an individual that might serve to bring you down or pull you into a negative space. This is in direct contrast to the teaching that we just read. Acquire for yourself a companion, acquire for yourself an acquaintance, a friend, means, obviously in this context, now that we have the opposing teaching, means have a good friend, have a positive influence, invest in healthy relationships, in, in relationships with people that are going to benefit you, and I say benefit you, again, not using someone, but will benefit you because they are a positive influence in your life, as opposed to hanging out with or, or attaching oneself or fraternizing with those that will be a negative influence. Again, this is not scientific. It's anecdotal. I have seen countless examples in my own life and in, in the lives of those around me where especially as a young adult, the trajectory of one's life is very, very much a product of the relationships that are chosen as opposed to the relationships that are forced. And what I mean by that is like this, that we're all, no one chooses their parents, right? That, that's all, am I right here? 
correct? We don't choose our parents. We don't choose our, when we're, when we're little kids, we don't choose those friends. It's all contextual. It's like who we were in school with, and that, that becomes our, our neighbors are our neighbors. That's not really of choice, although we're talking about now, keep a distance from an evil neighbor, but that's as we get older. As we get older, I'm talking about the teenage years and beyond, high, middle school, high middle school-ish, but high school and college and beyond, that's when relationships become more and more and more about choice. It becomes more of our assertion. Now, we could take the easy route or the path of least resistance and say, well, whoever's around me will be my neighbor. We, you, it, it's possible, even as an adult, to say, well, whoever's in proximity to me, that's, that's my friend. But we know that at that point there is a choice. Even if we choose not to choose, it's still a choice. Are you with me on that? It's still a choice. The choice is, I'm not going to find another group of people or another friend to, to positive influence or positive, you know, I'm going to just stay with, it's still a choice. So the, the point here is, Pirkei Avot, classic Jewish ethical teachings is the power of friendship, the power of companionship, the power of hanging out with people that you respect, that you, that you, that, that you know will be a positive influence, as opposed to um, filling our lives with, uh, with those that are not such a positive influence. Okay, questions or comments thus far? Yeah. Rabbi, hold on one second, one second. Yeah, there. Hold on one second. Yeah. All right, so uh, to the part, and I completely see the wisdom of what you're saying, but, um, you know, you're not meant to study alone yeah. um, when you're, I guess, studying the Torah. So, you know, say you're like in today's world and you're super scholarly and you read like hours, right, daily. How, how do you recommend finding somebody that's down there? Let me repeat your question for our online crew. So, Darren's asking, so in today's day and age, you know, it's, you can do a lot of study in a somewhat isolated environment. There's online study and other forms of study. Um, and let's say you're very scholarly and you're, you're, you're putting hours of study in a day. Like, where are you going to find a group that necessarily matches exactly your interest and your schedule and, and all that stuff? So I, I think like this. I think that, you know, it may, it may not be in all areas of, of your study are you going to find a Chabura group. But, but have at least enough where it's keeping, I don't mean you specifically, but it's keeping you honest. In other words, you have enough collaboration where you're not just staying inside an echo chamber, where you are collaborating on some level. Maybe not in every subject, every hour, every topic, but at least in enough where you do have interaction. So, but you're right, we do live, it's interesting because we live in the most connected time ever. Right but also in the most isolated time ever. Like we're the most, it's never, never in human history, obviously I'm gonna state something obvious, could people at the other ends of the world connect in real time with the push of a button? Never in human history is it possible to connect, you know, like WhatsApp, FaceTime. I mean, it's, it's crazy the amount of, of connection that there is. And yet, and yet, I may venture to say, and you know what, let me just throw myself out there. I will venture to say, and I will state this, in my opinion, as a fact, opinion, fact, fact, opinion, is that there's no, no time in human history that human beings have felt more alone. That's my, that's my opinion. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how you would figure that out because um, who was asking people in the, you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, how alone do you feel? Were they asking these type of mental health questions? I don't think they were going around and asking that. But I believe, anecdotally, that, or just personally, that there's never been, that there's never been a time where people felt more alone than today, even with all the connection. So it's a challenge with technology to really develop relationships 
even because of that isolating uh, uh, level of, uh, you know, that isolating nature of technology. Technology allegedly brings together, but could also isolate. So Darren, to your question, it would be being proactive about finding some sort of either, you know, virtual spaces or real spaces to, to connect and collaborate. It's very important to have those spaces. Donna, jump in. Yes, I was wondering if there's any potential conflict when, you know, choosing among options with who to relate to and then and, and then conversely therefore de-choosing others in the de-choosing is is that any conflict with the you know when we spoke about uh, not to judge others no so i don't think that if, if 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 a person recognizes that someone is a negative influence in their life to limit those interactions is not is not judging someone negatively it's 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 uh, being proactive about what, what, what is healthy for them. Um, judging someone disfavorably means that you're creating a narrative, you're creating a tale, you're judging, you're, you're hating on whatever it is. I mean, that's, that's a whole, that's a full-time, that's a full-time job. So the, the, the mission is telling us, don't, don't take that as your occupation. You don't need to judge others. Unless you're wearing a black robe and you have a gavel and you get paid to do that, then do, stop judging. Like, who are you to, like, why are you judging? Just live your life and connect with those that are, that are positive influences. If someone's not a negative influence, you don't have to judge them, you, but don't connect with them either. Maybe that's the proximity, that juxtaposition in these two Mishnahs. The first Mishnah, it's not the first Mishnah, Mishnah 6 of, par, of chapter 1 says, don't judge, but the very next Mishnah, Mishnah 7 says, don't connect with a negative, uh, negative influence. It means you don't have to judge them, but you don't need to connect with them either. So it, it's, it's very important that we take autonomy, we take responsibility for our own, for our own lives and our own, uh, and our own environments. It's, it's what I say very often, I'm now quoting myself, about, about the influences that we put on our mind in general. We know now, because we, we know this, that it's very important to be aware of what we're putting inside our bodies, right? We know that it's important that we don't just, you know, it's, it's not, if we're putting something inside our body, then we need to be, we need to be mindful about that. Ideally, and, and right, we, we ought to be, and we're not always 100%, but that, that's, that's a goal. And yet, and yet, as I've said many times in these classes and other classes, we don't do the same necessarily for the influences that go into our mind, what we see, what we pay attention to. We're a little bit less careful about that. Whatever's on, we watch. Whatever someone else decided to produce, we consume. Sometimes, not all of us, but sometimes. We're less mindful. The same thing is true, and, and I just want to go to today's topic, same thing is true with relationships. Oftentimes, people are less than proactive about the influences in their life. And they say, well, you know, I grew up with this person, or they're, they're in my vicinity, in my neighborhood, or my family. They're in my... So therefore, by default, this is going to be my relationship. And the, the, the Mishnah, Judaism tells us that we need to be a little bit more mindful about that. We need to be sure, and maybe that's another message of the word kine, to acquire to purchase. You don't go to the store and just buy whatever they're selling. Okay, well, maybe sometimes. But no, but the point is like when you're buying kine, when you're being kind of something, when you're acquiring something, you buy what you want to buy, ideally. Sorry, Madison Avenue, trying to sell us what you want to sell. Um, but ideally, buying means purchasing what I need. So maybe here the message is, I'm just coming up with a, with a bit of a twist on this idea, or another angle on this. means when you're thinking about your friends, your friendships, your companionships, your relationships, make sure that it's acquiring for what you need. 
Acquire for yourself what you need. What do you need? In your, in your, in your, um, what influences do you need? What's going to be healthy? Doesn't mean to kick someone to the curb and be mean about it and arrogant. Of course not. Be a mensch, right? Don't judge someone else. But it also doesn't mean keeping an unhealthy influence as your primary influence when you know that it's not good for you. Okay, so again, it's like in everything, it's all about finding a balance. Yeah, Yaakov. Um, so since all of us are Bainanim and we're all, you know, we, we all have weaknesses and rough spots, none of us are tzaddikim, um, how do you acquire for yourself someone who's uh, all good energy and all a positive influence since all of us are a mixed bag of nuts? Yeah, your question is that... Um, seeing that we're, that none of us are perfect, so then who is this, uh, this magical friend? So the answer is, there is no magical friend. There is no magical influence that's going to be perfect. It's about surrounding ourselves with those that, that complement our energy, co- those that complement um, our virtues, and those that can also push up against our, our negative traits, as we'll see soon inside, and we are going to read, so- hopefully, we're going to read the, the text inside. Part of what it means to be a good friend is to call your friend out when they're not doing what they should be doing. That's part of good friendship. To be a yes person and, and just, yeah, and this is, okay, I'm just going to say this, and, and, and I hope you appreciate, uh, this is not to any, this is just a, a point that I feel very strongly about that maybe is a little, oftentimes, as friends, we feel like our job is to support unconditionally and to say yes. And that's not always the best way to be a friend. I'm just going to say that. Sometimes it's to call out the other person and say, call out their mishagas. You know what mishagas means? When they're thinking a little bit uh, foolish. It's to say, you know what, I mean, not in, a, not in an obnoxious way, but to say, <laughs> I, I actually think you're making a mistake. And that, that, that the, the, relation, the friendship should be close enough where they will respect what you're saying and actually say, you know what, thank you very much for sharing that. Let me, let me, let me consider that. This is the art of friendship. The art of friendship is not just say, yes, I support you. And, and whatever narrative they tell you that you're like, yes, you're right, they're wrong. Don't we have often fall into that trap? That when your friend tells you something about someone else, you automatically support them and vilify the other. Is that always the case? Because you're, they're your friend, they're always right? Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan didn't have that relationship. Rabbi Yochanan said, I think the law is like this. Reish Lakish says, you know what? I love you. You're my friend. You're my brother-in-law. I agree with you. No, he said, I love you, but I think you're wrong. That's a healthy relationship. Healthy relationship is one in which you can push back against the other. So my point is, Yaakov, to your point, you're not going to find someone perfect, number one. No, no reason to, to set the bar that high. But number two, it should be somebody that complements your energy but also is not afraid to push back out of love. Someone who's not afraid to tell you, you know, I think that, you're, uh, that maybe you could look at it a different way. I, I want to get this, to this next text that speaks about the, the negative influence of, of a negative neighbor. It's a very interesting story. I have it up on the screen. Um, it's the le- no idea where we are anymore. It is the page that looks like this. What's the first line? It begins with we learned in the Mishnah. Okay. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Back of page two. Back of page. Is it back of page two? Thank you. Yeah. I think it might be helpful to clarify. I think it's the word judging because when you say like don't judge a person, I think people can, might be confused about let's say 
maybe you need two different words for judging the totality of a human being versus judging an action. Because I, I, I think it could be confusing when people hear don't judge. I think people think sometimes you don't judge an action versus, I think when you say don't judge, I hear don't judge the totality of the individual versus saying this right. thing you're doing is bad versus you're bad. Right, so Matt's pointing out a very, a very important distinction and that is when we say don't judge, it doesn't mean that you can't recognize something that's wrong, that some, someone did something wrong. It just means don't judge them as being like a bad person. Like don't judge the totality of who they are as opposed to an action or two or whatever it is and make a, dis uh, a discernment. Uh, my understanding of this is it's more in the context of, of being arrogant and saying, therefore, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're not good, or you're low, or you're, you know, you're worthless, you're meaningless. We, we, uh, human nature is, 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 no matter who we are, there is some tendency, no matter where we are in which place in life, there is some tendency to look down upon someone else, right? For whatever reason. And so I think that's really the, the bigger picture of, of, this, of this teaching, is don't look down on others. It doesn't mean you can't accurately um, perceive that this action is wrong, it just means don't generally look down on someone else. Okay, now let's talk about Bilga. This is the end, this is the, actually the last piece of Tractate Sukkah, the Talmudic Tractate about Sukkah, Sukkot, the holiday and the festival and the Sukkah. Anyway, it talks about here the, 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 the priestly families that would divide the lechem upon the showbread, which now that I'm thinking about it, I probably need to give a bit of an introduction to this. Okay, so in the temple, the holy temples that stood in Jerusalem, temple of old, there was one of the items in the temple was the shulchan, Shulchan means the table, so it was a table, kind of like this, but gold. And on the table were stacks, six stacks, two stacks of six layers. And there were, on each layer of these two stacks of six, loaves of bread. These are known as lechem hapanim, the showbread, the bread on display. There were 12 loaves on display in the temple, in the area known as the Kodesh, known as the area of the holies. Inside that same area, it was, if you've ever seen like a kind of a bird's eye view of the temple, there's an there's, there's a outside perimeter within which is like an open courtyard. And then in the middle, not in the middle exactly, but toward the end of this area on the western side, there was a building with a roof, like an enclosed building. And that building housed the space that's called the Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holies and the Holy of Holies. In the Holies were three things the menorah, the candelabra, the shulchan, the showbread table, and the mizbeach hazav, mizbeach hazav, the golden altar that was used for incense. In the Holy of Holies, which is behind another curtain, the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark fame. Okay, that's where that was, with the cherub, the kruvim, the angels. Okay. So let's talk about the showbread table. So it was a table, a golden table that had for lack of a better term, shelves, if you will, little compartments, and there were six loaves stacked one on top of the other, but not directly on top of each other, but six and six, 12. And these loaves were rotated out every Shabbat. And it coincided with a brand new priestly shift that would work in the temple. So who would do the service in the temple? Priest, the, the priest, the Kohanim. But there were a lot of Kohanim, and you know what they say, too many cooks spoils the broth or something, and can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. So they divided all the priests into, they, there were different priestly families, and every priestly family took a shift, a one-week shift 
to work in the temple. There were 24 families that had, that had shifts, and they had two shifts a year. Are you with me on this, on the math so far? So there were, I, we took all of the priests, they were divided into 24 families that constituted 24 shifts, and each one had two weeks, had two one-week shifts throughout the year. So they went one through 24, and then went back one through 24. That's 48, close enough, and that was your year. You with me on this? Okay. As the shifts closed out, as one shift ended, the shifts ended and started on Shabbat. As one shift ended and one shift began, they would, br- they would take out the old showbread and bring in the new showbread. And the old showbread was eaten by both the outgoing shift and the incoming shift. You with me so far? Part of the perks of being a Kohen and working for a week in the temple is at the end of the shift, you get some showbread. Some of this it's even fresher than our bagels from, uh, from Kosher Gourmet. So the, out, the incoming shift would have and the outgoing shift would have. The way it worked was the outgoing shift, because they just served for a week in the temple, so each one got six loaves. The outgoing shift would eat in the, in the north side of the temple, which was considered to be the more spiritual side because they had just worked for a week. The incoming shift would eat in the south, which was less holy because they, they were just getting started. You with me on this? Sort of makes sense? Now we can jump in here. We learned in the Mishnah that Bilga, you with me on this? We learned in the Mishnah that Bilga, Bilga was one of the names of the shifts, one of the 24 Kohat priestly families, one of the names of these family shifts was Bilga. We learned the mission that Bilga always divides the showbread, why is it showbread? The showbread, I have no idea what that is, in the south, even when it is the incoming watch. I'm sorry, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe the incoming watch does it in the north. No, I think I got it wrong. All right, sorry, I got to to rewind a little bit. It's the incoming watch. Because they're coming in, they eat in the north, which is the holier place, I guess. And the outgoing eats it in the south. But even when Bilga was incoming, they would always eat it in the south. The Gemara elaborates. The sages taught in a bright, the why. Why was Bilga always relegated to the south? In this case, it was the, the less holy space in the temple. Why was Bilga always relegated to the south even when they were incoming? So here we go. There was an incident involving Miriam, the daughter of a member of the Bilga watch. So Bilga was a family. There was one girl from the Bilga family whose name was Miriam who went and apostatized and went and married a soldier serving in the army of the Greek kings. Are you with me on this? She left her faith. She left her family, she left her faith, she left her tradition, she left her Judaism. She went and apostatized, which means she basically renounced her Judaism. And she went and married who? A Greek king, a a member of the army, a soldier in the army of the Greek king. This is around the story of Hanukkah. Listen to this. When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, that's the story of Hanukkah. Okay? Okay. She entered with them. Miriam Bas Bilga, Miriam from the Bilga family, a Jewish girl, went with the Greeks when they were defiling the temple and breaking the seals of the old, the Hanukkah story, right? She went in with them and was kicking with her sandal on the altar. And she said, Lucus, Lucus, wolf, wolf, 
Until when will you consume the property of the Jewish people and yet you do not stand with them when they face exigent circumstances? So fancy this translation. It says, Lucus, Lucus, wolf, wolf, how long are you going to consume the sacrifices of the Jewish people? And yet you consume and you consume. And when they're in danger, where are you? Understand what's going on here? She's hitting the altar with her sandal, with her shoe. And after the victory of the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees over the Greeks, this is the Hanukkah story. I know we're a week off. We could have done this last week. And after the victory of the Hasmoneans over the Greeks, when the sages heard about this matter, about how she denigrated the altar with, by hitting it with her sandal and screaming at it, they fixed the ring of the Bilga watch in place, rendering it non-functional and sealed its niche. This is basically the ring the sacrifices, and it's very, it's compl- I'm not, I don't want to get into all the details. They basically punished the entire watch, the entire family of Bilga, on her account. Because she was a member of the family, or she had been a member of their family, and she, she denigrated, she desecrated the, 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 the temple and the altar. So they basically shut out that mishmar, that watch. They let them serve, but they didn't let them use their own equipment. They didn't have a locker. They basically locked their locker. Essentially, that's what it means. Everyone, each of them had a locker in the temple. They, they sealed it. They, they, had to do the job without the they didn't get the perks. They had to eat in the south, right? They, eat, they ate the, 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 the showbread in the south. Or I'm skipping this. I'm skipping this. Do I want to skip this? Okay, let, yeah, let's, let's skip a little bit. I, I'm skip online, I'm, I'm, I'm moving the, I'm, I'm scrolling forward. Look at the page where it says, oh yeah, I don't even know where we are anymore. Look at the page where it says, the Gemara clarifies. You see that where it says the Gemara clarifies over here? Yeah? Page three. Huh? What is it? Bottom of page three? Bottom of three. Bottom, bottom of three. Um, skip a few lines. One, two, three, four. However, look where it says however. However, according to the one that said that, so there's two different opinions. Let me just fill in the gap. I don't want to study it inside. There's another opinion as to why Bilga got punished. Nothing to do with Miriam. There's two different traditions as to why Bilga got, uh, got penalized. But the story that I want to focus on is Miriam's story. So according to the one, to the opinion that says it was due to Miriam's daughter Bilga who apostatized that we, so that's why we, we punished the, the watch of Bilga. So the Talmud asks, why do we penalize the entire watch of Bilga, the entire shift of Bilga because of his daughter? Because of one person you punish the whole thing? Abayah says yes. As people say, the speech of a child in the marketplace is learned either from that of his father or that from his mother. If she is screaming and hitting the altar, Lucas, Lucas, wolf, wolf, she probably learned it at home. You with me on this? Yeah. The Talmud says it's not just an isolated incident. Well, you think, where did she come from? She came, she raised herself? No. If she's disrespectful toward the temple, she obviously heard that, she obviously heard some disrespectful things at home. So it's not just one, it's a whole family. Okay. The Talmud continues to ask. The Talmud asks, and this is the last piece on this handout. And due to Miriam's father and mother, do you penalize an entire watch? That still wasn't the whole family. It still was a larger unit. So you're saying it's not just Miriam, it's her parents. Fine. So for Miriam and her parents, you punish the entire shift? Abaya said, Rasha, Woe unto the wicked, woe unto his neighbor. 
Yeah, it wasn't everybody. It was only Miriam and maybe her parents. But you know what? They were all part of the same shift. And when she turned and when she did that, woe was to the wicked and woe was to the neighbor. There's an influence and, and, and there's, a, there's, there's an influence that happens and there's, a, there's, there's the fallout that happens and it, it, it goes broader than the, the immediate. It fans out to those that are in proximity. And, the, the, and to conclude the tractate in a positive note, the Talmud says, and conversely, it's good for the righteous and good for his neighbor, as it is stated, say you of the righteous, that it should be good for him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings, which means the neighbors of a righteous man, a righteous person who witness and acknowledge the good that befalls him, will benefit from their proximity to him. So it's good to have good neighbors. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is not sponsored by State Farm. However, I do want to say this. The Rebbe, decades ago, spoken one of the most, one of the, to me, one of the most impactful talks that I ever saw the Rebbe give, not live, there's a recording, there's a video of this. The Rebbe interprets the story of Miriam Basbilga in a positive note. He says, here you have a girl. The Talmud looks, clearly the Talmud views it as negative and the watch is punished and the whole watch is punished, the whole shift is punished because of her and her family, fine. But the Rebbe reclaimed Miriam Basbilga. The Rebbe brought her in a positive light, like only the Rebbe could do. The Rebbe said, look at this girl. She left her faith, she left her people, she left her family, she married a Greek, she came in while they were ransacking the temple, and what was she saying? Listen to what she was saying. Lucas, Lucas, wolf, wolf, how long will you consume and not protect? What did she want? She wanted God to protect her people. Even as she abandoned her people, and even as she was arm in arm with a Greek soldier ransacking, what was her plea? She was, her plea was, how come you're not protecting your people? How could you just take and not give protection? In other words, deep down, she cared. Deep down, she cared. The Rebbe uses this story not to show Miriam Basbilga's um, evil or negativity, but rather the core that is unbroken and never, never can get, can never get um, corrupted. The Rebbe actually was called out for this by some after that Fabrengan. He said, why are you, why are you uh, shining her in a positive light? That for thousands of years, we've been learning her story in a negative light. The Talmud brings it negatively. Why are you suddenly flipping her for the pot? Look, she, she still had a... a, a she still, like, why? The Rebbe gave an answer, which is a powerful answer. But that's not for now. The Rebbe always looked at things in the positive. But the point here is, it's not good to hang around the negative neighbor, it's good to hang around the positive, but it is good to hang around the positive neighbor, the power of influence. With this, we now go back inside to our text. This is Discourse 14, chapter number two. Please take and pass. We have just enough time to be a little dangerous here. Kidding. Okay, so, so far makes sense, yes? You guys with me? Power of influence, power of friendship? Okay. This is now chapter two, discourse 14. So turn the page, please, to page 200 and, hold on, 208. 208 in your booklets. I'm gonna put it up on the screen right now. 208 in the booklet. Here we go. We're talking about the excuse that people make. We, we started this discussion several weeks ago. We talked about ver we're talking about various folly, foolishness, foolish things that people say, people think to excuse themselves of negative behavior. A person says, it's not my fault. 
Number one, it's, the challenge is too strong. My passion is too great. We debunked that over the last few weeks. The second excuse that people make is, my friends made me do it. I got caught up in a bad environment. And the Rebbe here is trying to tell us that that's not a good excuse because at the end of the day, ultimately, we need to be in control of our environment. Environments don't just happen to us, especially as adults. They don't just happen to us. We need to mindfully and carefully choose our environments. So let's jump in right now. Chapter 2, overcoming the second reason or the second excuse. The second excuse that someone persuaded him, and it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I'm not guilty. Someone made me do it. That is no true claim. Why? For he should really avoid evil companions and not befriend the wicked. Influence of companions is effective. I don't even like that translation. The Hebrew says, Harba chaveros, chaveros oisa. Friendship is impactful for the good and for the bad. And good companionship, good companions bring much benefit. Torah study, for example, he says, requires companionship. And this is what we spoke about earlier today. Two, as is written, two are better than one. Tovim two are better than one. As our sages say in Brachot 63, which we studied inside, as it comments on the verse, the sword is upon the sorcerers or the arrogant, different translations clearly, besides the fact. So, and that's it. That's the quote. But you and I know the source. It's good to study in a chabura, in a group, not alone, because it leads to misunderstanding foolishness, and going down a negative path. Besides the fact that with companionship, the God-fearing converse with each other, it has a great effect. So he continues to say, additionally, additionally, when you speak with someone who is uh, spiritual, it has a great effect. In addition to this, third, so number one, Torah study has to be with somebody else to really understand it. Number two, speaking with somebody that has good values and ethics is good. Number three, man, and this is what I mentioned this before also, a human being is unable to recognize his or her own failings because of self-love. It's very hard for us to truly assess our, whether we're right or wrong, whether we're, whether, you know, our flaws. It's very hard to self-diagnose. Love conceals all sins. And self-love is the strongest love of all. The greatest love that we have is for ourselves. Naturally. And love is the ultimate concealer. Love is that filter. Is that insta-filter that covers all blemishes. There are no wrinkles when it comes to love. So love and self-love, we look at ourselves in the mirror, we don't notice the flaws. I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about the, the internal stuff. We excuse it. The excuse is not a layer on top of the flaws. It's not like, I did something wrong, but... It's almost an organic, it's, it's a natural, it's an intrinsic um, understanding of I'm not so bad or, or this is good or I'm fine. A person is unable to recognize his own feelings back inside. Love conceals all sins and he fails to admit his flaws. But his comrade, a friend, sees and knows more than he and reproves him. A good friend is one who doesn't, who doesn't hold back from telling you where you need to improve. Right? I mentioned this before. And persuades him that his behavior was not as it should be and that his purpose in life is to live in the proper manner. This can have a profound effect. So we have in this first paragraph of chapter 2, as we close this first, first paragraph out, we have three benefits of a good friend. Number one, that what, you're, what you study is much more effective. Number two, they can help. you can help each other acquire good traits. And number three, they can call you out for the negative stuff. Yes? So far, so good. Let's continue. Conversely, he says, evil companions, and again, that's, that's like a, evil is like a big word. It doesn't mean evil. 
right? Diabolical companions, right? It just means negative uh, influences, negative companions have a negative effect. They persuade him to abandon the proper path and cause him to do things he, would never, he never would of his own accord. I mean, do we need to elaborate on this? Right? How often does it happen that you alone would have never done that if not for being in a group of friends that did it? This is quite common, he says, that people inherently inclined to decency become evil. Again, evil is not, the translation here is, is a harsh translation. It means do something wrong, God forbid, purely because of the company they keep. How often does this happen, he says, that a person who otherwise would not be inclined to a certain behavior gets involved in a certain behavior, a certain activity, because they were with a group of people that were doing it or challenged each other to do it or whatever it is, and it ends up leading to that place. Have you met a teenager? I'm only being nice to us. Have you met an adult? Our sages instruct, on us, instruct us in Avo chapter 1. We learned this before. I, I, what I did was I pulled out a lot of these references that are very, very brief, and we spent time analyzing the references in the original, so now it's easier to read. Our sages instruct us in the first chapter of Avod, Ethics of Our Fathers, acquire a comrade, a friend. Acquire a friend. Obviously meaning a desirable companion. <laughs> it's not like acquire a, a negative influence. It's acquire a friend means a positive influence. For you will receive a great deal from him. In other words, it's going to benefit you greatly. Conversely, avoid an evil neighbor. The, the, next, the very next statement of Avot is avoid, as we learned, is avoid an evil neighbor and do not befriend the wicked. As our sages say in Sukkah 56b, woe to the wicked, woe to his neighbor. That's the story of Bilga, which we just studied inside. The story of Miriam Bas Bilga that the whole shift got punished because of the actions of Miriam, who was influenced by her parents. But it influenced it then ripple effect. It got everybody. And Rashi makes a similar observation in the words, Vayika Korach, Korach Tuk, which is the text that we started today's class with, which means that Korach took also the people, his neighbors from the tribe of Reuben, who lived in proximity to him, and they were also caught up in the whole coup, in the whole uprising against Moses and Aaron. There is no doubt, he says, back inside 210, that if the neighbor becomes a companion, he will have an even greater influence. If the neighbor remains a neighbor, my only relationship is the fact that we live next to each other, that's one thing. But when the neighbor becomes a companion, when I hang out with the neighbor, when they become an influencer in my life, then it is a negative, well, if they're a negative influence, then it's going to be a negative influence. Thus, listen to this, listen to this line, it's a bit harsh. But it's true. Thus, man condemns himself by selecting harmful friends. So how can he justify himself? A person says, it's not my fault. My friends made me do it. Hold on. Chacham. Right? Who chose those friends? Who chose those? So now, if you're a kid, I, I, I let us off the hook before. I'm going to let you off the hook again. Not you. I'm going to let us off the hook again now also. If we're talking about the friends and, you know, that, that you didn't choose, Fine. Fine. But we're talking about the ones that you did choose or you could have opted out of also at some point. Then there's no excuse. And you can't say, well, it's not me, it's my friends. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. You understand the value of, of, of autonomy? The value of choosing, you know, privacy settings, choosing what goes into your body? That you understand. But, but the influence in your life, suddenly you have no choice over? Come on. Right? So thus man condemns himself in other words, makes himself guilty by selecting harmful friends. So how, and the end throws me off. I get triggered by that end. So how can he justify himself? By appealing to his first error, his choice of a, a companions as an excuse. In other words, the only justification is 
my companionship. But that was my first choice. I say first choice. That was the first step. And who made that first step? That was me. So this is no, so ultimately he says, the, the, the translation here is very spotty. I don't, the point is, the, the, the big idea is after the semicolon, which again doesn't set it off to me properly, this is no justification. It is only because he misleads himself out of self-love that he searches and finds a false excuse to justify himself. And why is he blaming his friends? Just because he doesn't want to face the music himself. Even with this very thing that he's guilty of. So, I, so what's my excuse? My friends. But who chose the friends? Whoops. <laughs> I guess that was me also. Right, so it's not, it's even if you, th his point is, if you think about it, it doesn't even work for what you wanted to work for. In other words, the whole point is to get you out of the hot seat, to, to, to shift the blame away from you, but ultimately, it still mirrors back to you because you chose or you're hanging out with those friends. So, again, it's because it's of self-love that he's trying to find an excuse to justify himself, even with the very thing that he's guilty of, i.e., with which he sinned. The effect of this attempt to find an excuse is that he will not feel remorse and repent his faults properly. So he says, what's the problem with this? The problem is that when you blame someone else, then you don't take responsibility. And when you don't take responsibility, then you don't really feel the brunt of the wrong. When you don't feel, really feel the brunt of the wrong, then you can't really rebound from it. If you don't hit a place of, if you don't own the problem, then you can't own the solution either. If it wasn't so bad, then it's not going to be so good. The whole point of going down, this is a Kabbalistic truth, the whole point of a mistake of going down is to rebound even higher than before. But if you never go down, then you can't rebound. Going down means that you acknowledge the wrong. If you're not acknowledging the wrong, because it's not my fault, it's not so bad, somebody else made me do it, you know, they made me do it, he, she, whatever it is, then if, if it was never bad, then it's never going to be a rebound of good. Whether regarding repentance of balance, he says, enduring hardship to balance the pleasure derived sinfully, he will not exercise this degree of repentance because he doesn't feel he has done so terrible a sin. So he assumes he needs not torment himself to such an extent when, when repenting. We don't do this today. But some people back in the day, especially um, people of uh, high spiritual caliber, they would engage in physically depriving self-punishment to balance the physical indulgence, the physical sinful indulgence that, that, they, that they pursued. So commensurate, equal, balance, repentance of balance, mishkal. Balancing the pleasure, the, the, the ill-gotten pleasure that they got, ill-gotten pleasure, they will balance it with self-denial um, or... Self or something that balances it. But if it, was, if it wasn't so bad, the pleasure, then you're not going to do that, then you're not going to... You know, repent in the right way, and especially regarding back inside. Just going to quickly make a beeline to the end and wrap this up. And especially regarding the actual repentance, it is very important. For if he justifies himself in this manner, if a person justifies their negative actions, then his remorse for the past and his resolve for the future will not be as penetrated, since remorse and resolve depend on one's bitterness of his soul. If you're not really upset at what you did, then you're not really going to rebound from it. When he is deeply anguished by his sin and wrongdoing, then he truly regrets and uproots his desire from it, and his resolve for a better future will be a true one. But if he justifies himself, then his bitterness is less intense, for he finds merit for himself. And because his bitterness is not so intense, his remorse and resolve are weaker. If you don't feel so bad, then you're not going to actually rebound. We all know that when you feel, you know, when, when, when something really affects you, then you really like, never again. But if it doesn't really affect you, then you're not going to go so strong in the positive. Hence, his self-justification, and this is maybe the most powerful thing, his self-justification deprives him of so much good in his actual repentance and his potential improvement. 
through true repentance, he is truly changed from wicked to righteous. His very character becomes different. He is alienated from whatever is contrary to godliness. When his repentance is not true, however, then naturally he is not changed as much and is not as, as alienated from evil. In other words, the whole point of sin, and I'm going to add this in over here, the whole point of sin is to become, is to grow from that process. But the problem is if you sin and then justify it, then now, you mess, then, then now you're, not, you're not even realizing the benefit of sin. The whole benefit of the mistake is to grow stronger. But if you, you justify it and now you're not going to grow stronger, so now you just have to sin without the benefit, it's like, that's a waste. It's a waste. Right? It's like, it's like eating too much over Thanksgiving, but then using that as a catalyst to hit the gym even harder. But if you justify it and now, then if it doesn't lead to that, then, then it's stam extra calories. Stam means just, you know, now it's, now it's not even leading to something positive. So what was the point? It's like you wasted a crisis. You had a crisis and you wasted the, p- the potential from the crisis. It's like wonderful. Like at least you would have leveraged it for something positive. Then, then there's a good outcome. But now it's just, it just lands there. Done. Now what? Because of the justification. This is similar to the folly that precedes sin. That folly leads him into sin, and the folly of self-justification prevents his repentance from being as effective as it ought to be. So there's two follies. There's two follies. And we'll end with this. There's folly that gets you to make a mistake, and then there's the folly that prevents you from getting out of the mistake. Which one is worse? The second one. Because what, what the mistake could do is even better than the good stuff sometimes. The mistake can lead to a better place than you could have ever got to, gotten to without the mistake. But if you don't capitalize on the mistake, that's the worst. That's the worst mistake. To not capitalize on the mistake is the worst mistake. So making the mistake in the first place, still not so bad. Because you, you, can, you can fly from here. But if, if you miss that opportunity, huh? But the correction is even greater than before. But if you mess that up, that's the worst. Let's, and let's read that inside. In one Sense, 2.12. This is boiling point. This is where it, gets, where it, gets, where it gets hot. In one sense, that's the boiling temperature of water, 2.12. All divine providence. In one sense, it is even worse than the first folly. The second folly is worse than the first. When one has sinned, God forbid, or repents from the very depths of his heart, the Talmud declares where the repentance stands, the perfect righteous cannot stand. In other words, one who climbs out from a negative place is stronger, is tougher, is deeper than the person that never faced those demons. However, the, this latter folly, not taking responsibility, not, not growing from it, prevents him from attaining the sight. It is more harmful even than his initial foolishness, for it is a barrier to immense good. For true repentance brings man to an extremely lofty level. So what's the moral of the story? Thank you for staying with me on this. What's the moral of the story? There are, there are mistakes that we make, miscalculations. There are justifications, excuses, narratives that we spin in our minds that get us into trouble. But what comes out from this last piece is, that's a halbatsara. That's half a problem. Because if you got into trouble, that's still, we're still okay. Well, how you, you're in trouble. Yes, you're in trouble. But where you can go now from this place of negativity is greater than had you never fallen into trouble in the first place. So in other words, from this place, you can climb, you can fly. So you can, you know, a trampoline. You have to go down to go up. If you want to jump over something, you take a step back to go higher, to go further. High jump. You've got to go back to go forward. You've got to go down to go up. That's the way it works. So the fact that you're down, not so bad yet. But if you now take the wind out of your rebound sails with the second justification which, tells your, which you tell yourself it's not so bad, 
that kills it. That's like pulling the rubber band back and then snapping it and cutting it. Now what? Now you got nothing. Now, you got, now, you, now you, you're back and you stay there. So now what? So the second justification, the second narrative, the second shtuyot, shtus, is worse than the first. The first one gets you into trouble. The second one prevents you from getting out of trouble. But it's not just getting out of trouble back to where you were, but growing from the experience. True growth, he says, is dependent completely on acknowledging it, owning it, embracing it, accepting it, no excuses, it's on me, and now I can grow. That's the prerequisite for growth, is owning it, is acknowledging it, is facing it, fearlessly admitting to what it was and not deflecting and blaming and pushing it on anyone else. As long as I'm doing that, I'm never going to grow. So the growth potential in this place is the greatest, but only if I don't do the second folly. And what is the second folly? Number one, it's not my fault. I couldn't have done any better. Number two, they made me do it. And both have been debunked over the last few weeks. So where does this leave us? Power of friendship. Let's have good friends, positive influences. Number two, when you find yourself in a place of post-mistake, it's not post-malone, post-mistake, don't, um, don't let a crisis go to waste. Own it and grow from it. Make sense? Well, now we just have to implement it in our lives. All right, now comes the fun part. All right, thank you for joining me today for uh, Kabbalah and Coffee. We're back on next week. Next week we begin Chapter 50. I really wanted to get to the end, and I, again, I appreciate your staying with me for another few minutes. I really wanted to get to the end of 14 because 15 is such a beautiful beginning of like talking about the difference between human beings and angels and body and soul. It's so beautiful that I wanted to really get a clean start a running start on next week. So, so what do you think the Rebbe said when people The Rebbe said a story of the Alta Rebbe and the prophet, I think it was the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, so it's a crazy story. Crazy story. The prophet Jeremiah, Yermio Anavi, was murdered by Jews for warning them warning the community about the impending destruction of the temple. Jeremiah said, guys, either get your act together, stop serving idols, or else God's going to destroy the temple, exile. Like, there were a group of Jews that didn't like his message, and they, they, they murdered him. They killed him. That's the story in the, in, the, in the prophets. Fast forward thousands of years to the Alter Rebbe, the times of the, the founder of Chabad. He lived 1745 to 1812, so it's probably late 1700s, early 1800s. So he was once at home or, or in the synagogue, and somebody came to him telling him that there's a, a fellow who went mad, who went, and it seems like he has an evil spirit, like a dibuk, like a, an evil, evil soul, like an evil spirit that suddenly has taken over his, taken over his body. And the Alter Rebbe said, bring him to me. Sat him down. They all sat around the table. And the Alter Rebbe began to say the following. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. He said, the people who killed Yermiyohanavi, Jeremiah, actually had a good intention. Why? 
because they knew that a prophecy that is unuttered cannot come to pass. But once a prophecy is manifest verbally into the world, then it will come to pass. So they did not not want him to share the message because they disagree with what he was saying. They didn't want him to be manifest the impending destruction of the temple verbally and manifested in the world. So they were actually looking out for, this, for the welfare of the Jewish people and, and they went around in a, obviously in a misguided way because that was wrong, but they had good intentions. And at that moment, the evil spirit left this person. What happened? What happened was that the people who killed Jeremiah, the Jews who killed Jeremiah, their spirits, that they did something so horrible that their spirits were eternally doomed and never found rest and went around from person to person or whatever. By the Alter Rebbe finding an excuse, a justification for what they did, kind of released the torment of the soul and allowed it to go on and release it from this body. This is crazy. Because this is, we're talking about the 19, I think it was the 1970s or 80s when the Rebbe said this. The Rebbe said this story as, as a reason why he said this story of Miriam Basbilga, he said, people have asked me why he said it, and he drops this story, and that's it. You with me on this? Yeah. You see what's going on? Yeah. The Rebbe drops this story. And what's the implication? The Rebbe doesn't create, connect the dots, but what's the implication? That obviously her soul had been tormented for, tha for thousands of years because since what she did, she was vilified by her community, by her family, by the Talmud, by all the commentaries for thousands of years. And obviously her soul needed some sort of release. And the Rebbe spoke about her positively and without saying it, but the Rebbe quoted the story of the Rebbe about the, 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 these people. And that was it. I mean, that's like, it's like spooky stuff, and can I explain it? I can just tell you the context and tell you the story, but certainly the Rebbe spoke about this. And um, in fact, in fact, um, yeah. In fact, uh, once we sign out, I'll, I'll pull up something very quick to show you. All right, actually, can I show it here? I, I probably can show it here. For those of you that are, that are interested in, uh, in hanging around. Rabbi, about that story, um, since uh, Jeremiah already made the prophecy, what's killing, what good is going to come out? Uh, you know, what good would come by killing him? Since it already they were trying to, they thought the more it was manifest, the more it could harm. Yeah. Yeah. So what I... Um, I can't find it now. All right. For those that are interested in seeing the original, the Rebbe speaks about this. It will, um, it will be very powerful, in my opinion. If you want to hang around for just another minute. You should find it here. Oh, share my screen one second. Let me optimize it. Optimize the video. Share the screen. Type in a password, I don't know why. Okay. The Talmud relates the priestly dynasty of Bilga was It's very low, I don't know why. Of its daughters. But why punish the entire dynasty? Yes, sir. The Talmud answers 
because woe is to the wicked and woe is to his neighbor. Super low. In that case, the Talmud continues, good is for the wicked and good would be for 